I'm not shy to come out and say it's been a tough 18 months. That's Ham Shiranjoji, the co-founder and CEO of Chipper Cash. I think you have to come in knowing that it's actually really, really hard and painful, but the reward can be incredibly exciting. You have a quote that stood out to me talking about long-term perspectives and time yeah. horizons. Obviously, you know, the times then were more favorable for doing capital-intensive things. Times now were more aligned with capital efficiency. From a company building perspective, I know there's a lot of lessons as well. End result of that is either you're more knowledgeable or you just raise your hand and be like, I can't do this, I'm out. Major night, like, we'll never do that. Today's guest is Ham Shiranjoji, the co-founder and CEO of Chipper Cash. This conversation with Ham comes at an interesting time for Chipper and in the market in general. Tough macro conditions on the continent, a slowdown of funding, tech layoffs, and at the same time, a lot of new and significant product launches for the company. In 2021, Chipper raised a $150 million Series C extension, valuing the startup at $2.2 billion. But has since cut its valuation, reportedly by 70%, has engaged in three rounds of layoffs, reducing its headcount by nearly 175 from its peak of 450, and has drastically pulled back from its aggressive growth and expansion strategies across the continent. So in today's episode, Ham and I talk about all that and much more. This episode of The Flip is sponsored by Onafreak, formerly MFS Africa. Onafreak is the leading real-time payments network for Africa, which connects over 500 million mobile wallets across over 1,300 cross-border corridors and in over 40 countries across the African continent. Throughout the season, we'll hear from the Onafreak team about their work to create a borderless world. In this episode, we're joined by Martin Mbonu, Onafreak's country director for Sierra Leone and director for MNOs in Anglophone West Africa, to talk about Onafreak's agent-led remittance product, Baxi Remit. Being the hub that aggregates mobile money across the continent with the acquisition of Baxi, Baxi has been leveraging on its synergies with the hub. If you observe the, the agent distribution in Nigeria and the user behavior with the agents, what typically happens is people live around these agents. The agent lives among them. The agent is in the market. The agents are on their street. So rather than going straight to an ATM or to a bank branch, they would go to a Baxi agent either to withdraw cash or to deposit cash. And where does Backstreet come into that? It allows you to send money from Nigeria to about 20 countries in Africa. An individual could go to a Backstreet agent, give him cash or card, and the agent is able to do a transfer to any of the African countries, the 20 African countries that we've listed. A typical example that you would see are artisans who migrated from Togo into Lagos to, to work. Some of these guys are plumbers, some of them are bricklayers, and they send money back home every week. These are very little transactions at $70, $50. They go to an agent, give them either cash or the card. The account here is debited and the funds is transferred. So the same behavior across product vertical. The only difference is that we don't added the cross-border feature to this. So last we talked, we talked a lot about Chipper's business model and, and growth strategy. And you have a quote that stood out to me talking about, you know, long-term perspectives and time yeah. horizons. And in the short term, a lot of fintechs or companies in general are still focused on fees and shipper at the time was talking about fee free mm -hmm. everything and you know fees are going to go to zero and having to have long time uh, horizons for all of that obviously as a lot has changed you know a lot is sort of macro related naira devaluation downturns you know there has been some rounds of layoffs at chipper as well i'm curious to know how if at all your thinking has evolved as it relates to growth and sustainability and a lot of what we talked about a couple of years ago. I think the companies that uh, are able to um, to be long-term minded as much as possible have a competitive advantage. And and that's always been something that I think I strive to have, you know, with, with Chipper. And 
I think it's also true that, you know, there's always times when you have to navigate accordingly, um, and uh, different times require different um, uh, adjustments. I think at the heart of that statement I made was really access, right? For us, price and cost is a barrier in our space. The more expensive it is, the less people that can use it. And Chippa was uh, the intent for our businesses to have as many people participate in formal financial services as possible. So removing that barrier, and by the way, Chippa is still fee-free for local domestic payments in any country we're available in. People, we don't charge fees for sending payments to Chippa to Chippa in, lo- in your local countries. That's still true. And I think uh, at the heart of, of our focus on access is how to provide the best quality services with the lowest barriers to participation. The times then were more favorable for you know doing capital-intensive things, raising a lot of capital and being aggressive in different areas. Times now are more aligned with capital efficiency, capital is more expensive, less money going around, so you need to adjust accordingly. And we've been exactly as uh, compliant with that as any other company has in terms of you know, looking at every cost area of the business, being efficient, uh, making sure that we're uh, being as um, uh, thoughtful about resources as we can, and that, still doing that with a long-term mindset. Like I, I keep telling everyone on the team and my leadership team that, you know, we still have to think about Chipper in 10 years, you know, not just in like, you know, 10 weeks or whatever time frame, you know, people who are doing things in short-term um, viewpoints think about things. So in any company, particularly the leadership team, is uniquely the only team that has to think about things in terms of like now, but also in the long term. Otherwise, what are you doing if it's just for, you know, a quarter or a month? So our North Star hasn't changed. Our you know ambition for the business hasn't changed. Its impact on, on, on what I think we can be hasn't changed. But obviously to better navigate these times, which are, you know, I think this has been probably the most challenging um, stretch of time in the financial markets for many businesses since I think 2008 mm-hmm. or even before. So you have to adjust accordingly and you need to make the necessary adjustments to be well positioned to go through that period and come out stronger. Yeah. And I feel pretty good about, you know, the changes that we've made. Yeah. And, and that um, is not necessarily <coughs> unique to African fintechs. I think fintechs in general, globally, right, we're here in the Bay Area mm. right now. I think a lot of fintechs are experiencing markdowns. Do you feel that there's a particular challenge in operating in African markets that, that you felt? Or how has that impacted Chipper in that way as well? Africa has always had its challenges in terms of operating in it. Like, there's always been, you know, that very well-known haircut that you get from being an African company, mm-hmm. right? It's like the additional risk. You get questions people asking you, I mean, what about civil wars? What about this? What about that? And you're like, okay, you know. And so that's always been there. That didn't start two years ago. Mm-hmm. So we've always had to deal with those things. I think in, in many ways, the bar has only been raised higher from what was really a difficult place for a lot of businesses doing um, uh, work in Africa have had. But also, I think at the same time, I'm very optimistic, naturally, as, as a person. And I think I've seen a tremendous amount of change and appreciation and excitement around the African fintech space and African tech space in general in the last year, two years. Uh, I think there was a time when, like, every other week, there was a company in Africa raising money. And that wasn't, you know, Paystack or Flutterwave or Chipper. That wasn't the case in 2018. And you remember this. I mean, when we started Chipper, Major and I, the only companies we'd heard about raising money at the time were Flutterwave. Mm-hmm. Literally, even Paystack hadn't raised money yet. Um, and it was just such an unknown thing to tell someone that there's this thing that you can do in Africa that is not M-Pesa, but is still financial services. So we've come such a long way. And even if it feels like this last year and a half has been very, very hard, I think it's still net-net a much better place than we were in 2016, 
or 2017. Yeah. So overall, I'm super optimistic. There's unique challenges. You know, we talked about the Naira devaluation. Um, I think currency fluctuation has always been an issue in, in Africa. That's something that we've had to deal with from day one. I think it's only probably become more prevalent. But uh, that's, that's part of what we're building to solve for. Right? Those are the challenges that we're looking at as opportunities to, to fix. Yeah. So we've talked about long time horizons. You talked earlier about doing capital intensive things when capital is cheap. One question, though, that I have as it relates to this growth and sustainability question is, you know, I think a lot of people have talked about, you know, to do sort of hyper growth to subsidize user acquisition in Africa Mm -hmm. is a risky proposition because of, you know, whatever the consumer spend capacity, right? I'm curious to know in the context, again, of sustainability, if your perspective has shifted at all in that, or if it's only shifted as a function of you know, as you said earlier, capital being more expensive now. Honestly, I don't spend much time thinking about what, what other people say, to be fair. Um, everyone has an opinion about something. Yeah. Um, uh, I think, you know, everyone is an expert in African fintech, you know, <laughs> but, but few people are actually doers of it. And I try to sort of optimize more for what do we know ourselves, what are we seeing in the marketplace, what are we learning from our users, and, and what are we uh, trying to iterate accordingly with. There is a tremendous amount of value to be created and built in, with businesses in Africa, and especially in our space. You know, we're moving money for millions of people, businesses rely on us, uh, people rely on us to make uh, purchases for things that they couldn't have done otherwise via our cards, you know, via stocks to give people a chance to invest and save um, and access other assets. Those things are very, very hard to do. We know because we've done them. It's such a difficult product to put out there. So therein lies tremendous amount of value to be created if you can do it. Um, now, there are those people who have a comment about hyper growth or user acquisition or this and that. And that's where it's going to be. That's sort of noise that you're trying to do something new. You have to be good with giving it its due sort of relevance. Otherwise, you'll never do anything. There's always an opinion about something. I think vis-a-vis user acquisition in Africa, I mean, African um, consumers, I think, are just as exciting a consumer to serve as any other market in the world. There's a tremendous amount of intent and ability to interact with online goods and the global economy. And if you create a medium for people to do it, you'll create a tremendous amount of value. So I, I don't think you know any particular way about African consumers being less valuable to invest in aggressively vis-a-vis user acquisition. I think it's about doing it in how it makes sense for your business and being smart about it. And definitely, when capital was cheaper, you can be very aggressive with user acquisition, with market um, uh, entry, those things are very expensive, right? Getting into a market, getting an, a license, setting up a team, you know, integrating with banks and telcos, that's that's a high capital intensive endeavor. Doing it across 10 markets mm. is 10 times more expensive. Acquiring a bunch of these, those things are all expensive. So you definitely want to do those things when you plan to do them in a way that the capital that finances that is not as costly as it could be at another time. Yeah. But I still think there's a relevant amount of value to be seen and to be acquired from supporting and serving African consumers. Yeah. And uh, investing in that, we will never stop doing. Yeah, and from a capital allocation perspective, I mean, the market expansion is an expensive and cumbersome thing, but yeah. I think you guys are also sort of expanding vertically as well. We're talking a couple of weeks after you guys just launched uh, Chipper ID, mm-hmm. um, which I, I believe has been in the works for quite a long time as yeah. well. You know, back to this idea about doing capital intensive things when the capital is, is cheap. but. 
Can you talk a little bit about that? I want to I want to maybe talk about um, um get into the weeds with with product strategy a little bit afterwards. Yeah. But maybe just tell me a little bit about the 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 nexus of Chipper ID first. Yeah. So let me first go back a little bit and talk about you know why launching products is very hard, right? On our platform today, we've got you know P2P, we've got uh, cross border payments, we've got cards, we've got stocks, we've got crypto, we've got business payments. Um, and in, we just acquired a company in South, in South Africa called Zona to double down on that. In some ways, supporting that breadth of products across multiple markets in Africa, you're forced to be both horizontal and vertical at the mm-hmm. same time. To, what I mean by that is you have to build your product, then you have to build the services that support your product. In, in more mature markets, you can go and get Rails to do payments. You can go and get Rails to do compliance. You can get Rails to do shipping and all these things that you know are very heavy lift uh, efforts, but they exist in more mature markets. Where they don't exist, you have to build them out yourself. Chip variety is in very many ways uh, a function of us having just continuously improved and built out our compliance functions. Um, we've had to be very sophisticated with compliance, fraud uh, reduction and elimination, risk management, just a bunch of, there's so much that goes on under the hood. When you send a payment, there's so many things happening before that payment is actually cleared in a millisecond that all require a bunch of screening, matching different watch lists, uh, so much stuff that goes on. And the more efficient you can be with those things, the better the product is, but also the cheaper it is for you as a company, it's l- less cost. And definitely in the last 18 months, as we've become even more maniacally focused on costs in, in our own business, we've looked at areas we can be even more efficient. And one of the things that we found that we were incredibly good at was building tools that we need for our business and not having to spend a ton of money on third-party services. So compliance being a very big area, we just got continuously better and better at doing our own stuff. And eventually we're like, we have a great suite that we know other companies are gonna wanna use and benefit from. And we package that up to create cheaper ID. Mm-hmm. So the 18 months definitely reflects the amount of time it took to get to that point. But we did it for ourselves first. And even if we never have another client use cheaper ID, what it saved us as a business, millions of dollars, yeah. is already worth it. But it's just not a very unique way that we take our scale and breadth and sophistication and offer it to other people and we turn what is a cost center into a profit center. Mm-hmm. And those are things you can do when you're at a certain scale. Yeah. Certain scale, certain ability to, to build good products. And, 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 and small things, like I'll give an example, right? Like if you're trying to do a verification of a user in Uganda, right? You, they sign up and you say, put in your phone number, get an OTP. Yeah. The OTP doesn't get delivered. Yeah. Like there's like less than 50% deliverability rates for OTPs. Right. So off the bat, half your customers are being blocked up at that point. So we had to build a, a service which we, we patented and got a patent for, which uses USSD to send OTPs. And that took drop off point from like 50% to like the high 90s. But these are things that you don't think about twice in the US. Like you just go into Twilio, everyone gets their OTPs. In Uganda, like that's 40% success yeah. rates, 30% success rates. So, you know, how do you solve that? You know, IDs, right? You get an ID taken from a very low quality camera with poor lighting, you know, and like it's, you know, some of the words can be read very well. What do you do with that? So you have to figure out a way to, to verify those details. Yeah. So there's very unique challenges that if you just go and get an Fido or someone else, they don't understand to no fault of theirs because they haven't really had to deal with this market in depth. Um, but we have to solve those things at every point. And the end result is that we have a very uniquely built suite of products that works so well for our market yeah. and saves a ton of money. Yeah. And so I, I sort of have this idea that, you know, becoming a full stack fintech is a strategy, but 
perhaps the right way to think about it is it's become a necessity because there's things broken across yeah. the entire value chain. So you have to build it and then it can become a profit center for you guys thereafter. It's painful, but it's so worth it when you come out on the other side of it. You have to do so many things um, uh, for you to be able to scale and grow and, and scale efficiently. Like look at like Jumia, you know, a great business, um, you know, pioneers and innovators in every sense of the word. Uh, but they struggle with um, lo the logistical aspect of their business because we don't really have very good shipping. If I'm trying to ship a, a laptop to you know a friend in Uganda, mm. like that's such a painful thing to do, right? Um, you can have the most amazing tech, but if you don't have those foundational, you know, infrastructure layers, either you build them yourself or your business is limited. And we've just had to build a ton of stuff ourselves. So I can't emphasize that piece enough because. Um, from the perspective of like Chip Ryan e, as an example, um, we're so uniquely placed to want to have the most minimal aspects of the product. So if all we do was do Chip ID, we'd be looking to how do we add more products so we can charge people more money. But here, actually, our incentive is how do we remove stuff so we can cost us less money. And, and that puts you in a very unique place as a service provider, um, which I think makes us even that much more capable to compete in, yeah. in spaces that you know become available to us as we as we get bigger. Again, it might be a function of necessity, but I think there's a lot of um, you know sort of the punditry talking about the importance of focus, mm. right? and especially in this sort of age of APIs and specialization, right, enabling you to have sort of hyper focus. I think yeah. that's not necessarily the case in again the African fintech context. How do you think about yeah. this idea about focus or about taking on too many things when you're trying to do everything well? Or again, is it just like a, what choice do we have? Yeah, that's a very good question because it's something major that I think about all the time, right? And actually, I think there's more things that we say no to than we say yes to, even between the two of us. Like when we're setting, do we want to tackle this right now? We've, we've had to say no to more things. Like there's so many things I wanted to do that we haven't done yet. For example, like microfinance. Mm. No one has really done that well. I mean, we have a bunch of different options, but I don't think that it's been solved properly. And I think we have ideas on how we can do that really well. Um, there's so many areas around, I think, fintech. What I think is exciting about fintech in Africa is that it's still such a virgin space that you want to do so much, but that also can be a problem if you try to do too much. Um, and I don't think there's any like magic answer in terms of like, do only four things, do three things, or do you know one. Um, that's something that you kind of constantly have to keep balancing as a business. We've tried to be thoughtful at every turn around how we are adding products and services. Uh, we're not adding necessarily new products right now. Our sort of productization phase was maybe, you know, 2020 to 2021, 22. We built out a bunch of things in that period of time. But all, everything we added had a common theme to it. Those are things that all made the existing products better on the platform. But if you look at the chip up app today, where you can send money to anyone in your country and abroad, you can receive money, and then you can use that money to buy stocks in Amazon or Tesla or whatever in your local country. You can buy crypto on the app. You can put that on your Visa card and spend it online to pay for your tuition or whatever. Um, you can pay a business using our API for businesses. So it's really created an ecosystem where every product that we've added actually adds more value to the ones that already exist. So we've tried to be methodical about what we're adding, not just adding random things, but things that we know our users want and that also enrich the existing products that we have on the platform. Yeah. And I think that's allowed us to be a uniquely well-placed platform for, you know, you can do a bunch of things in the ecosystem and have them be done very well and, and have a great experience doing them. Yeah. And you guys made a recent acquisition of Zona. 
in Southern Africa, where does that fit into the equation and what's the vision for, um, yeah. for integrating that business into the Chipper platform? Yeah, so Zona was actually one of the first, um, um, like the true pioneers of FinTech in Africa. Uh, they've been around for a very long time, uh, very well run business. They have all, all access you can think of to the different databases and national switches and central bank access in, in Zambia. And uh, they've done a tremendous amount of work for organizations. So essentially, we're, what we're trying to double down on with the zone acquisition is what we call now chip of a business. Today, we have, I talked about having to be both vertical and horizontal. You know, one of the things we've had to be very, very like good at is building connections to telcos and banks to power our cash in, cash out uh, in different markets. And essentially, we've now started to leverage that infrastructure and offer it to businesses. So we have a bunch of organizations now that use our chip of a business suite to do collections and disbursements using those integrations. So acquiring Zuno was doubling down on that and taking that to the next level, getting a bunch of agent networks. They have about a network of over 400 agents in Southern Africa. Uh, CEO and founder of the company, Brett, joined us as now a chief product officer and leads that team. Um, and, and we've positioned ourselves to have a very competitive suite of, of business products. So many organizations, you know, Save the Children, a bunch of other organizations across Southern Africa use the chip of business suite to do collections and disbursements, and we're scaling that uh, aggressively uh, to a bunch of other markets as well. Yeah. So that's really targeted to us leveraging that aspect of our infrastructure um, to serve businesses uh, and, and, and also sort of take what was a very big investment on the to support the consumer business and have it be leveraged to drive a ton of value. Yeah. You just talked about um, agent networks, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really interesting consideration in the context of like the question of where African markets are today, right? I think we've seen a lot of fast growth also in Nigeria with, you know, MoneyPoint and Ope mm -hmm. and in Senegal and, and Cote d'Ivoire with, with Wave and their sort of agent led. To what extent do you think about that question of like being yeah. digital first versus meeting the customers where they are and Zona having this agent network that you can then integrate and how does that impact? other markets that you're looking at as well. I think it's a very interesting, um, it's sort of like, you know, Amazon was like 100% online bookstore. And now they have some physical, you know, shops you can walk in and buy something. Um, and I think in some cases, there's a very exciting digital aspect of what we do with FinTech in Africa. And we don't, like, we don't touch any physical dollars. Our, our consumers live entirely in the digital space. All their money moves from a bank to money account. And so that allows us to exist entirely in the digital realm. Um, uh, but as you keep scaling and as you keep getting bigger and bigger, essentially you need to at some point have some interaction with the analog world. And in some markets, uh, actually some markets actually it's required by the regulator. Like in, in Zimbabwe, we have a license in Zimbabwe. And one of the requirements is having the ability for people to actually physically deposit money to your system. Um, so there's some parts where it's actually a, a requirement from the regulator. But generally speaking, as you keep scaling, there's going to be needs for you to interact with a consumer at a physical point somehow. And Asian networks have been very effective ways that that happens in Africa. That, that's the heart right. of the mobile business, as right. you know. It's Asian banking. Um, and I think ultimately that's inevitable to start to participate in as you scale in certain markets and areas. And uh, I think for us, it's going to show up more in Southern Africa for now. Very likely that we might have some form of that in, in other parts of Africa, but I think there's still a tremendous amount of, 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 of work to be done in just supporting the movement of money between banks, chipper, telcos, that sort of thing, before you get into the 
the logistical nightmare of moving physical cash and handling, you know, that whole process. Yeah. This season of The Flip is all about sharing lessons and insights from some of the most experienced and esteemed founders from across the African tech ecosystem. And it's a mission for which we're proud to partner with Norskin22 to share wisdom and insights from the fund's unicorn board as well. We know that advisors and mentorship are an important part of the venture funding process. And throughout this season, we are speaking to and learning from the successful founders, operators, and investors from Norskin 22's unicorn board. In today's episode, we spoke about market expansion with Henrik Eklund, founder of the global consulting firm BTS Group. Over a 30 plus year career, Henrik grew BTS from a small firm in Sweden to a publicly traded corporation operating in 34 countries with a client base across more than 50 countries. I spent my uh, business life building this company, BTS, from a one-person operation, starting basically in a garage in Sweden with 5,000 bucks, to today a global consulting company across the planet, publicly listed, rapidly growing. We were in one market, our home market, Sweden, and we wanted to become global. And how do you do that? Do you add a market first or do you add a service line first? We had one product and one market. Now we have many markets and we have nine service lines. But that, that has been a gradual expansion, one step at the time, faster later in our development. And there's two key lessons. Number one is to pick the right markets. Don't only look at market research. Go there, test, learn, combine analysis and direct market experience. The second is don't go for too many markets too fast. Focus. If you have a one home market like we did, pick a first market outside of your own. Succeed there and then move on to a third, fourth, and with time you can accelerate. I think a lot of companies make two mistakes. One is to look too much at analysis, not going to the field enough. And the second mistake is you want to conquer the world at once. And as I think many companies have learned recently, as well as Napoleon Bonaparte learned 200 years ago, if you go too wide too fast, you will fail. So we've talked a bit about some of the recent lessons, product and, and expansion strategy specific. Yeah. I think from a company building perspective, I know there's a lot of lessons as well. You gave a great interview with Forbes, just talking, I think, very transparently, which I certainly appreciated about some of um, you know what's what's happened at Chipper as it related to the multiple rounds of layoffs and, mm. and things like that. So you said, I feel like I've grown up so much in the last 12 months. Um, what sorts of things have you learned and what stands out to you? Um, yeah, I, I definitely feel like I've grown in the last 12 months a lot. If I didn't, that'd be terrible. That'd be concerning. <laughs> Given how much I think uh, new, how many new experiences um, I've personally hired as a CEO, and uh, you know, um, uh, someone who's had to navigate the company through this period, it's absolutely been a, a very challenging period across the globe, uh, but also for us in terms of how do we move from a model where we are very aggressive expansion to um, essentially focusing more on efficiency, sustainability, and still managing to still have some level of growth in terms of we still want to get in new markets, we want to get some new products out. You know, you you can't stop innovating, but you have to sort of balance that out depending on what your needs are. There's no how-to manual and, you know, uh, there's no class that teaches you how to have a discussion with someone about laying them off right. or or how much to lay off, right? That's, that's, that's another learning point, if I'm being uh, candid. In hindsight, you could have laid off more people in the first process, um, uh, but you do so from the perspective of you want to have minimal impact on people, which is very important to me. Um, uh, you want to think about things more optimistically versus maybe 
less optimistically if, if, if the market keeps getting worse and worse and worse? What's the worst case scenario? Are you hedging for that well? And there's always room in every decision for a more downside assessment. Um, and I think uh, the first tranche of layoffs that we did, I definitely could have pushed harder to, to lay off more people. That was one of the learning points. The learning point was communication, right? How do you communicate to you know um, hundreds of people that you employ that we're gonna have to let some of you go? Um, and how do you manage the uh, the sadness and the uh, the fear it creates in other people, right? And concern about their job security, because we, we've had some scenarios where people say, you know, my sister or my spouse has lost their job, my parents lost their job. So they already come from a place where in the inner circle, you know, whether it's at home or elsewhere, there's really fear around job security. And they want to come to chip and come to work and be comfortable and not be insecure about their job. So you have to provide that level of, of, of security and support. You know, how do you manage those things in a world where you're doing your own layoffs? Uh, how do you communicate that well? Like, which teams do you need to pull back on more? Which teams do you need to double down on more? Those are all things that no one teaches you that. You have to sort of make that decision and, and make those um, um, decisions with the information that you have and, 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 and be decisive. Uh, that's the thing that I also, you know, uh, appreciated more and more in the last couple of months. Like, being decisive is such a superpower. Like, sometimes you might make a suboptimal decision, but just making a decision is progress in its own right. So it's a bunch of things. And also, obviously, navigating macroeconomic climates, right? Um, how do you plan accordingly? Like, you know, when do you plan to do another round of capital intake? Do you do it now? Do you wait six months? Do you wait 12 months? Um, who do you do it with? Um, you know, how do you manage that uh, group of stakeholders, which are your investors? How do you manage regulators as well? You know, we have, we have over 50 licenses. We deal with a bunch of regulators across the board. Those are put yourself to manage relationships whether you're doing layoffs. Uh, or when you're thinking about how aggressive you want to expand to their markets or not. Um, and so there's, a, there's so many things that all have, you know, very difficult questions that are no clear answer mm -hmm. that you have to think about. And the end result of that is either you're more knowledgeable or you just, like, raise your hand and be like, I can't do this, I'm out. You know, and, you know, Major and I, like, we'll never give up. We're super bullish about what we're doing. We're super excited. I think the opportunity to do it has never been bigger than it is now. I think even in terms of most people are retreating and pulling back, this is the time to like really cement your position and your lead in the in the space. And for us, I think it's also given us a chance to have a renewed clarity on some things. Um, for example, you know, part of I think one of the silver linings of doing the layoffs is we actually became a lot more efficient as a, as a company, right? Um, coming from growing incredibly fast. Like when I saw you in 2021, maybe late 2020, somewhere 2021. We'll never know. Yeah, yeah somewhere there. Uh, I think we maybe added another like 250 people between then and just a few months ago. Um, so the very fast growth, you know, those things create strains in the organization, uh, communication, red tape, a bunch of stuff that builds up. So layoffs give you a chance to sort of re right size, get more efficient, get leaner in some, in some areas. And we've actually been more productive and more executed better since we did our last layoff than we had in, in, in the last, I'll say two years. Um, so there, there are opportunities that present themselves in times like those, um, and if you sort of lean in on those, you can actually come out of it much stronger and much more capable. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, we feel pretty good about that. You know, it was a tough decision to make, and you know, it's not fun. And every CEO friend of mine I've spoken to that's done layoffs, like they all tell you how it's agonizing to 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 tell people that you like and that you know that hey, we're gonna have to let you go. Yeah. Um, but you know, coming out of that. 
you create a much stronger organization, you put yourself in a much better place to execute better and all those things. So I think overall it's 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 proved to, to work out well for us. Yeah. So th there's all these questions, how to think about layoffs, how to think about capitalization, right? So what are you thinking about now and, and going forward, what does the sort of path to profitability, sustainability look like? Yeah. Um, fundraising, right? That's, I think, a very interesting yeah. question in this context as well. How are you thinking about that? Well, I always think about all those things. I'm constantly speaking with investors, constantly speaking with uh, external partners. Like at every point in since the company, there's been people approaching us to discuss investments or potential partnerships. So that's sort of, so that's always like a, con a constant engagement. The discussion or the decision always comes around who is the right partner and when is the right time, and and what what do you need? And I think for us, what, one of the things that we've just said, focus on those last eighteen months is putting ourselves in a place where we don't need anyone capital-wise, right? And that's being profitable. And that's been a singular goal to just get ourselves to a, a place where we're profitable as a business and we're 100% self-reliant. Um, and we, like we, we've, we, we, this is the strongest financial position I've ever been in as a business today. And you know, very close to, to achieving our goal of being prof profitable um, in a market like this, when times are you know, very hard from a perspective of, if your consumers are hurting, ultimately that will translate to the business. Uh, but if you can find growth and drive value for your consumers, then you can find ways to keep driving, generating value and generating revenue. So I think that's been one of those areas where it's forced us to think more deeply around what are the optimizations in our own company that we can make. And that's most things like Chip Ryan, right? When we thought about where the areas we're spending heavily, like where we're really incurring massive costs, third-party vendors is one of the big ones. Right, how we're thinking about different services that we rely on, how we think about user acquisition, how we think about marketing, how we think about all these aspects that make the whole thing, you know, run. And at every single point, there's always room for improvement. And so I think the net result of it has been that we've become significantly better at, um, at being much more efficient as a business. And ironically, every time we've done a fundraising process, it's been when we least want to. And so. Ultimately, the the state of list one in the fundraise is typically when you 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 you, 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 you know you can you have the leverage to walk away from that process, so you just don't need the capital at all. Mm -hmm. And I think long term, and speaking of how access has always been a central part of the business, the most important way we can guarantee access about for the products that we build is just being a business that's around forever. And so I think getting to a state of full sustainability and reliance, that's a, a very powerful place to be. So. That's been a singular focus for us as a business. Yeah, there was also some news, or at least a rumor, about a letter of intent from Zeps. I don't know if there was anything yeah. there, but you talked about maybe opportunistically sussing. I, I don't know if there's anything. I think that was leaked. I don't know how it was leaked, but someone involved in the process wasn't, leaked wasn't it. Me. <laughs> no, no, it was. But uh, again, that's another area where I, I can. What I can say is that there's always ongoing discussions with people who approach us about acquisitions. That's been true. Even when I met you in New York, there was. People at the time took notes about acquisitions. Yeah. It's been true ever since then. Uh, and we've never sought to put ourselves up for sale. So that's always been true. And we don't think that we're at a state where that's the best path for us. But that particular transaction is referring to with Wild Remit. They did approach us. We engaged them. I like Ismail, the founder of Wild Remit. Um, I think it's a great business. Uh, there's actually many synergies between us and them. Um, and we always engage different people to different degrees whenever we, we, we speak with them. Some try to move fast, put letters of intent uh, across, um, um, some don't, and we keep engaging them over other opportunities to partner. But that was one of those things, like we, we have, like on the corporate side, there's always ongoing activity in terms of people that want to 
um, partner with Chipper, acquire Chipper. Pretty obvious when you think about it because a lot of the things that we've built are very hard to build. It, it takes a lot of time and money and brain damage <laughs> to, to build a lot of these things from many smart people who work very hard every day. And if you're thinking about you know, Africa and consumer fintech in Africa, either your opportunity, your, either your options are to you know, compete with Chipper or you acquire Chipper or you partner with Chipper. Um, so naturally, there's going to be a lot of people who say, hey, you know, what are your thoughts? Can we work together on this? Can we work together on that? Are you open to an acquisition? Um, so those are always happening. They're also very confidential. So I'm not just being uh, ambiguous for the sake of being ambiguous. We actually have confidential engagements with these people. So I, I, I can't just come out and say, oh, we discussed this and this and this and that. Um, and that's why when that leak happened, I was very upset. I was like, you know, it's a bit shitty to be put in a place where I have to somehow discuss something that's confidential. Um, and I, I don't like breaching, you know, things that I've, I've, I've agreed to be confidential about. Yeah. Um, but acquisitions are like, that's part of the game. I mean, if you speak to, pick your favorite African fintech founder, they, they'll tell you that they get acquisition discussions all the time. So it's not unique to us in any way. I know for a fact many other folks who um, are actively speaking with potential people about being acquired right now. Um, it's just, it's a natural state of, of doing things. I'm very inclined to ask who, but I know you can't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, if I, if I told you, I'd be part of the problem. This series is a lot about what are some particularly pertinent lessons that founders have. And I think one recurring yeah. theme is um, the role of, you know, transparently talking about how to address things like acquisitions or market downturns or devaluations or um, fraud, even By the way, another one, right? And, and the privately, I talk about this things with other founders. Yeah. I engage, people ask me for advice. I tell them, do this, do that. So many people ask me things about offers they're getting or you know yeah. stuff like that. So I, I talk about this openly in private circles. Here, I can honestly say that I think it's, the ecosystem is better when people share more about these discussions. And even when things are hard, like part of why I agree to do this, this discussion is that I'm not shy to come out and say, it. it's been a tough 18 months. Yeah. We've had to navigate you know all these headwinds and these challenges. And we know that we signed up for that, right? I, I, I hate to be someone who already projects things are great all the time. That is so fake and so untrue. And I think it attracts the wrong type of people into this space. I think you have to come in knowing that it's it's actually really, really hard and painful. And you set up for that. But the reward can be incredibly exciting. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes the reward is just a journey, even if you don't get to where you're ultimately thinking you, you want to go. Yeah. So there's many lessons that I think I, I could definitely share about our experience and I hope I share as many of them as I can in this conversation. Do you think at all about the sort of role that you or Chipper has to play in the ecosystem as well as it relates to its development? I think there's often this sort of also idea about you have to be protective because we don't want to tell bad stories of the African tech ecosystem because it's hard enough to yeah. you want to scare founders or yeah. fundraisers away, right? Yeah, the, unfortunately, uh, you know, we're raised to a, a, an unfair bar. It's like the first story of a bad thing happening like, oh, I told you, look at that. I yeah, told you, yeah. that's, that's Africa. So you, you have to be perfect all the time. You know, like a mature space, like, you know, obviously, let's say the tech industry in, in the U.S., you can have your as many, you know, bad things happen. And people and want, a lot of bad things do happen. And they do happen, yeah. And you won't stop betting on this in yeah. this industry. Like, it, it's so mature and so stable that you can afford that. Ours is still so young and still so new that, and there's still so much, stigma and stereotypical things about it that, that are false that the first bad thing to happen feeds so strongly into that you know whenever i see stories of founders who do like bad things or like 
you know, they mislead people or they, uh, you know, they use fraud. I'm like, God, those guys, do you know how much damage they're doing? You know, like, do they know how far back they set the industry? Because that's a story that people who are, you know, pessimistic about our space will always hold up and yeah. point to. So I feel there's a responsibility for sure that, that uh, I think we all collectively have. And I think the more prominent and the more visible you are and your brand is, even more responsibility um, to not, you know, do something that will adversely set the industry back. But I also think it's an unfair um, level of expectation to put on a young space that there are going to be mistakes, but it shouldn't change the the overall opportunity and it should not be a reflection of everyone else that's trying to do, which is the majority of people, trying to do very good things and very good work. You're here in the Bay Area, yeah. right? You're well-funded from you know US-based VCs, and I'm curious to know of, in the context of what you just said, you know their perception and the extent to which um, perception of U.S. investors has changed or evolved over time, and mm-hmm. how it's evolved in the past, you know, five six years versus now in this market downturn. What yeah. you're seeing? That's one of the things I'm proudest of. Uh, all of our investors were the first investment they've made in Africa, and I'm super proud about that because I think that's another person that has been brought in to the ecosystem and is more likely to fund other African businesses. Yeah. And then the other thing is, I also think there's a there's this very weird notion that uh, if you're doing an African fintech, you have to be in Africa. You have to only, like, you know, 100% be based there. And I'm like, that is, that doesn't make any sense. I think it's like we want everyone to participate in our growth. The fact that Chipper is something I'm proud of because we rely on Western funding and Western talent and Western you know, other things to build a great product that serves, you know, millions of Africans. Like, that is so cool. I think you need to, like, take everything that you can take that is supporting you to build a great product that's going to make the continent much stronger and support people on the continent. I've talked to many founders who have come and said that their regret is that they were sort of, they focused too much on, I have to be based in Lagos, I have to be based in, in this. And then they realized that when it came time to try and expand to another place, they had built their entire organization around being in one place or they were unable to interact with Western VCs or they didn't know how to uh, acquire talent in other parts of, of, of the world. And we said the company from the very beginning, we said we want to be a global business focused on building products for people in Africa. Major and I are born and raised in Africa. You could take us to Mars, we will always be Africans. Like we, we, Our focus is we're building a product for people that are living in Africa and we're going to take everything we can take in the world, talent, capital, advice from whatever corner of the world that wouldn't give it to us, and we're going to channel it to this very important cause. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think more companies need to think that way. And by the way, this is not just Chipper that does this. Flutterwave is headquartered in, in, in San Francisco. They have, I mean, even more Western investors than we do. Um, Money Point is, is in London. Um, uh, CUDA is based in London. Mm-hmm. And I think it's great because there's aspects that we still... I think need to be better at as a whole continent to be able to be in a place where you can say that we demand that every single business thing, business in Africa has to be based here. I think eventually we'll get there. But I think for now, if you're a young company and you're trying to find capital, come out here and look for capital here. If you're looking for talent, look for talent wherever you, you think it, it makes sense for you. Um, if you're looking for advice or whatever else you're looking for, 
go wherever it makes sense for you. Optimize for whatever the best place to be is. Don't restrict yourself because of some weird thing that yeah. says I have to be in Africa because I'm in yeah. Africa. Yeah. So I'm proud of the fact that Chepe is structured the way it is. And as a, I think maybe final question and, and closing point, you know, it's uh, September 2023 now. We're we're sitting here. Um, yeah. A lot has Time changed. Yeah. yeah, a lot has changed. What uh, does the near term and long term future look like for Chipper? What are you building towards, and um, you know, how has it changed or evolved um, since since you guys started? Yeah, like I said, actually, nothing has changed about our long term uh, plans and, and, and ambitions. We want to be um, the default financial platform for people living in Africa and beyond. Uh, and today, you know, as far as consumer fintech in Africa goes, uh, I think Chip is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, in many areas. And we're proud of that, but we have so much more work to do. We've only, like, you know, um, scratched the surface. We've got over 5 million users today on the platform. Those are peanut numbers. Like, that's, that's, that's a joke. There's, you know, we're in a space where there's almost a billion mobile money active accounts. When you think from that perspective, we have so much more work to do. Our work is cut out for us, and I think these next couple of years are going to be the years for us to continue to deepen our foundational um, um, infrastructure, um, licensing capabilities, all the, the layers that make the company work in a very strong way such that we can keep scaling uh, going forward. And, and I think what that means in the like more immediate term is that we still have more work to do. Like you look at a country like Nigeria, right, which is our biggest market, and you think about the opportunity that lies in just being able to have a card product that's accepted everywhere. Even today, our card product, we're about to issue a millionth card, by the way, because it's grown yeah. really strongly. Um, but we still struggle with things like Twitter doesn't allow prepaid cards, and we have to like obsess over getting that accepted. There's still things that, you see, when you look around, are still not acceptable. Someone has to solve those things. And I think these next couple of years, it's going to be like really ironing out those, you know, those areas that... I think still have Africa on the back foot because people think it's fraud and all these things. We have a really successful card program that has very little fraud. Compared to any other card program globally, it's, it's a really wonderful program. But because it's the bin is based in Africa and you know it's an African program, people are like, oh, you know, we that's that might be too scary for us. Most places accept our cards, but there's still those things that, again, you don't think about when you're in the U.S. because the card works everywhere. But an African consumer. That one small business and let's do an ad on Twitter, yeah, they can't do that in 2023. You can stretch this out in many places. You know, Uganda, we are the first company in Uganda to be given a license to do stocks. That's a product that still requires a tremendous amount of educational uh, investment, right? Going and telling um, a Uganda that you can buy shares in Amazon and Tesla, but you could lose your money. It goes up and goes down. That's important. Most people think you buy a stock, it only goes up, right? So... Access is one thing, education is another thing. Um, and until we can like really move the needle in all those areas that, again, require a tremendous amount of investment, like who's going to teach people about stocks? It's going to be us, right? Like who's going to pay for that? You scale that times you know, 10, 20, 40, 50 million people, you really have to you know, invest. Um, and unless we do those things, we won't unlock that next level of opportunity, which I know is is something that we can do. Um, uh, so I, I just think, you know, as a company, obviously, you know, going through a recession and going through an economic period of, of, of adversity, I think has made every company much better. If you haven't come out of this period and you're more resourceful, something is really like, look within your company for what's wrong. Everyone who's come out of this period has 
understood navigating spirit has become more resourceful, more thoughtful. You're definitely a different type of operator than you were before. And that's a good thing. That makes you that much more capable for the next 10 years. And I think, you know, that's as true for us as it is for any other company. So definitely, you know, I think you're going to see us participate more in the B2B space. Chipperity is the first of many efforts that I think underscores how much we've built to support our own growth that we can now offer others. And there's more of that to come. And then obviously, we have a few more products from the consumer side that we also want to, to, to roll out that we've just had to pause on because right now it makes more sense to just double down where we're active and where we're strong. And um, we'll tackle those other exciting areas as, yeah. as, as we go forward.